you care deeply and graciously for your children. Father, we pray this morning for our city. We pray, Father, that as we grapple with crime in various neighborhoods and the attendant lack of peace that both produces crime and is produced by it, that you would provide peace that is everlasting and eternal by the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. May we be ambassadors in a dying world that this city, that this region might hear the good news of Jesus Christ and find hope and life. We pray that those, even today, who are bent on hurting their neighbor would be moved to be gentle and to love. And may we, by example and word, point to a life that is beyond the material things of this world. Father, we lift up also this morning, though we have often, we lift up again the, the nation of China to you and their continuing persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, we know that it is entirely possible that 12 hours ago there were more brothers and sisters worshiping in China than there were right now in the United States. And we thank you and praise you that your gospel flourishes there. That our brothers and sisters do not shrink under the pressure of their government. Are not discouraged unto death at the oppression they face. And that no prison system or time of service would separate them from the peace they have in our Savior. We pray that their witness would be bold, even in the midst of persecution. That though Xi Jinping and the Communist Party do what they will, still the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. Teach us how we can be faithful in prayer and service, in our gifts, and even in our going to bring the gospel to places yet unreached in that land. And now, let our hearts be ready to receive your word and to obey. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're picking back up in a series on the book of Luke. So if you want to turn with me to Luke 6, that's where we're going to be. Turn, click, swipe, tap.
We're going to be looking at the back half of Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12, running through the end of the chapter. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And when he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man 
lead a blind man? Will they not, will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, and nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord? Lord, and not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Well, it's March Madness. It's the snow is on the ground, right? Smart man just means that everyone is following someone. I'm not. Uh, my teams are either not good, Illinois, or they're NAIA, Taylor. So that's a no-go. And if you're not following anyone like me, then you fill out a bracket so that you have someone to follow. And I went out on a limb with Gonzaga, and so now, again, I'm not following anyone. But everyone right now seems to be following someone. What does that mean? What does that mean to be a follower of Duke or, or UNC or Ohio State? You know, we, we have these categories. Are you a true fan? Whatever that means. Or maybe you're the, the bandwagon fan. You're following on every note because the team is suddenly good, like the Braves in 1991 or the Browns in 2019. You want to root for a winner. Or maybe you're a Fairweather fan. Yeah, the Cavs are your team. You're not going to follow anyone else. But without LeBron James and without a playoff appearance, you just can't make the time. Those are easier categories to define. But what makes a true follower? Fans debate that to no end. Who is a true fan? Who's the true follower? Who's truly loyal? Who's the real deal? In Luke 6, 12-49, we're given a portrait of a true disciple, what true discipleship looks like, what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. True disciples, as opposed to false disciples, or fair-weather disciples, or bandwagon disciples, are more marked by four C's. Calling, contentment, compassion, and character. 
The passage begins in verses 12 through 19. It's kind of the first section there. It begins with two scenes about Jesus and his disciples. In the first, Jesus goes out to the mountain to pray, and he does that all night long, and he's preparing for something momentous by communing with his father. And in the morning, he summons his disciples. They come, and, and from them he chooses 12. Two Simons, two Jameses, two Judases, an Andrew, a Philip, a Bartholomew, a Matthew, and a Thomas. And these 12 he names apostles. Now, of course, we're interested in the teaching that's going to come later in this passage. It's one of Jesus' most famous teachings. But why does this teaching immediately follow the naming of these 12 apostles? Well, an apostle is an authoritative representative. In the Greco-Roman world, an apostle was something like an ambassador. He or, or occasionally she would have been sent out by a very important person with the full authority to speak, maybe even do business in the sender's name. An apostle's status in the ancient world then was determined by who was doing the sending. In this case, Jesus is selecting 12 men to be his authoritative spokespersons. When Mark writes about Jesus selecting the 12, he specifically notes that Jesus chooses them to preach. So make no mistake then that apostleship is tightly connected with the ability to carry and convey a message from Jesus, the message of the sender. And so it's no wonder that before the lengthiest, weightiest teaching that Luke records, Jesus is selecting his representatives who will be charged to faithfully carry this message to other towns and cities. Twelve apostles are chosen from an unknown number of disciples, followers, whom he has summoned. And he comes down the mountain a little ways with his disciples, and he's, he's suddenly joined by a much larger group. A great crowd of disciples is there. Perhaps these were all the ones who were with him, and maybe some others from far away have, have joined. Um, but there's also a great multitude of people from north and south and everywhere in between who aren't numbered among those disciples. They've come to hear Jesus and to be healed, but they aren't all disciples. There's a mixed multitude here, to use the language of Exodus. Jesus, of course, he graciously and mercifully heals many. All who touched him, at the very least, it says. And that healing certainly gives credence to his teaching. I imagine someone might be more willing to listen to a new message after being healed or witnessing a healing. But make no mistake, this is a large gathering of both belief and unbelief, intermingled. The crowds were drawn to Jesus. There was something attractive about him, his message, his deeds. But note very well that not everyone there that day had been summoned by Jesus onto the mountain. Not everyone in the crowd was called. And in reading that, we might suddenly be aware that our proximity to Jesus and our proximity to Jesus' people does not actually make us followers of Jesus. In practical terms, that means there will be many people who are attracted to Jesus, attracted to his church, attracted to his people, who simply do not belong. It's possible 
You're one of them. You go to church, or you went to a Christian university, you sang in a choir, you went on a mission trip, you did a study, you get excited about Jesus-y things. Or you did at one time, or you sometimes do. But that's not the standard, is it? You can gather with Jesus' people on the plane. But did he call you up on the mountain? Luke writes that he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and spoke. In this great crowd, Jesus takes note of his own followers. With a deliberate consideration of his followers and would-be followers in the words that follow, he makes a distinction. He knows who are his. Not all who are in the crowd are called. But Jesus' disciples are marked by calling. We move into this, this famous section of what's known as Beatitudes, blessings. Matthew records a similar sermon to this one in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And it's, it's probable that Jesus preached the same basic sermon, the same basic themes repeatedly over the course of his ministry. His message didn't change, not fundamentally, just the audience, the time, the place. Matthew's version is slightly more famous, but this one is no less weighty. And so he lifts his eyes up on his disciples and he has those famous blessings. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Jesus gives us four paired statements of blessing on one hand and woe on the other. What do we mean by that? It's sort of arcane language, isn't it? Well, blessing refers to, to peace and ease and, and even happiness. A life of peace and ease. The Greeks thought of it as the, the way that the gods on Mount Olympus spent their days. In biblical thought, it's the life that is at rest in God's hand. You can do this in English, not, not right now, but you know, later, you know, go on Bible Gateway or, or whatever Bible tool you use and just search for the phrase blessed is and you know, put it in quotes so you're getting that phrase, blessed is, and you'll see who is generally characterized as blessed. You'll see quickly that it's a, a person who dwells in deep and intimate relationship with the Lord. Woe, on the other hand, is a pronouncement of pain, suffering, doom. It's essentially the opposite. If you do a search on woe to you, and you'll quickly find that it's often a matter of God's impending judgment. But then the categories that Jesus holds out are interesting, maybe even perplexing, because he holds out the poor and the hungry and the weeping. Why? What what is he saying there? Because after all, if blessed is to be at ease and at rest in God's hand, then an objective appraisal of the poor and the hungry and the grief-stricken of this world would seem to be the exact opposite of blessedness. So what gives? Well, remember, Jesus is looking out on the crowd. He has his disciples in mind, and he calls out to them with the pronoun you. We read in the, the gospel accounts, we read the book of Acts, we see that many, perhaps 
most of Jesus' earliest disciples were, in fact, poor. If you lived during Jesus' ministry and you truly were devoted to him, you might literally leave everything to travel from place to place with him. The Son of Man, he said, has no place to lay his head. We just looked at a story a couple weeks ago of his disciples eating grain on the Sabbath. And I can assure you that well-fed people are not walking into grain fields, harvesting the top of the grain by hand, rubbing it together to remove the chaff, and throwing the remaining bits into their mouth. That's not the way a person feasts. And so many of Jesus' disciples, perhaps most, were very, very much poor. But very often in Scripture, the poor are not merely the materially poor. Instead, they are those who, because of their material poverty, see their spiritual neediness more acutely. We understand the idea of a spoiled child. Kid who's been spoiled all their life through 18, 19, 20, way past the point when spoiling is okay, which is only for three years by grandparents. Um, even in adulthood, that, that kid, because they're an adult and they're still a kid, right? They, they, mistake after mistake is cleaned up by mom or dad or by a grandparent. They've skated by seemingly facing new consequences, never facing consequences for their choices. And they can be incredibly frustrating people to deal with, to talk to or engage because they don't understand how deficient they are. They don't see how their bad character is so terrible because their character never winds up affecting their social standing. They don't understand how bad their work habits are because there's always another job, there's always another income source. They don't understand how destructive their selfishness is because their selfishness never comes back to bite them. It can turn many otherwise decent people pretty spiteful and petty very quickly. And often when we meet such a person, we long for or, or we even attempt to orchestrate a situation in which they have to face the music. We think if that person is allowed to feel the consequences of the course of their life, maybe they'll just snap out of it and choose a better path. Arthur Bennett, in his collection of Puritan prayers entitled The Valley of Vision, wrote the opening prayer himself, which included the lines, Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness. There's a sense, isn't there, that when we are at our lowest, when we are at our most debased, when we are most without, when we are at our weakest, there all we have left is to rely on God. And so we will either die or we will throw ourselves into his arms. And that is often how Scripture thinks of the poor. They're not just material poor, they're materially poor. They are materially poor in such a way that they throw themselves on in, in complete dependence on God. 
But of course, the calling of Jesus' disciples, to his disciples, is that they must leave everything. We, we've seen that a few times in the book of Luke already. They must throw off every attachment. And sure, Jesus calls us to die. If we want to follow Jesus, we have to be prepared to leave every custom, incorporation, and creature comfort that we know. So those who would follow Jesus, though they are materially rich, must die to their riches and live like they are poor. Those who would follow Jesus, though they are well-fed, must die to their appetite and live like they are hungry. Those who would follow Jesus, though they are at ease and laughing, ought to die to their comfort and live as if they are mourning. These people are actually blessed, Jesus says. Because they will receive an abundance of riches. Their appetites will be satisfied. Their mourning will turn to rejoicing. Their temporary discomfort in this life will be met with an eternal bliss. They are content with what they have because they know what is coming. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, for this light momentary affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul, who suffered more than most of us could ever dream of suffering in our lives, saw his entire life as a light momentary affliction. Well, that's true discipleship. But then we have the woes. And these perhaps hit home. Woe to the rich. Woe to the satisfied. Woe to the full. Woe to the laughers. And these strike at us because we live in a decidedly rich, satisfied, entertained culture. Few of us have wondered where the money to get through the day will come from. Few of us have wondered. But even fewer have wondered where the money to get through the week will come from. And let me tell you, if you're not worried about getting through this week. You're not poor. If you have heat in the cold, you're probably not poor. If you wake up and choose which outfit which you want to wear, because you've got a few different options, and you want to know what fits the mood, you're not poor. If you wake up and decide whether you want to skip breakfast, or down a quick bowl of Cheerios. You're not poor. In fact, you're probably rich. And that's a decidedly different place to be. And if you're in Jesus' audience, and, and, and in a way you are right now, and you hear woe to you, then your question needs to be, have I died to my riches? Have I died to my appetite? Have I died to my need for entertainment. Almost 35 years ago now, Neil Postman wrote his famous book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, subtitled Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. I wonder what he would write about 2019. Not long after Postman wrote his book, I would have been scrubbing my deck, or not my deck, my, my fence in my backyard because mold and mildew had grown on it, and I was 
using bleach water and scrubbing the boards down to prepare them to be restained board by board. And it was hot, and it was laborious, and it was boring. In the last few weeks, I've been repairing my drywall at my house. And lately, I've taken to binge-watching on Amazon as I work. Never, never a dull moment. He, Postman was concerned about how easily we could amuse ourselves in 85. And I never have to be bored in 2019. I'm struck by how easily I'm amused. And I don't mean by that that I'm easy to please. I mean that entertainment, amusement is, is never more than a few seconds for me. Even writing this sermon, I took periodic breaks to play a quick game on my phone. But those of us who are unwilling to die to our own amusement, our entertainment, our social circles, will be found mourning on the last day. But maybe though in, in 2019, none of these parallel blessings and woes are more striking than the last pair. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. In an age of social media and, and every like and mention and comment is mined for significance, did she like it? Did he favorite it? Did this get retweeted by somebody important? In the age of identity politics in which every word and action is checked against who it might otherwise, there is tremendous pressure to be socially acceptable. And social acceptance is a little different than ideological acceptance. There's, there's a range of views that are generally tolerated at any given time, although the exact range is continually shifting and it really depends on the audience. Maybe that is the great commandment of this age. Know thy audience and measure thy words. You can be championed for an idea one day with one crowd and lampooned or worse for it the next day with another crowd. But blessed are those who are hated and excluded and reviled and have their names spurned as evil. On account of the Son of Man. Is that too much? That, is that too insane of an idea? A Facebook friend of mine, a, a former boss, I, I like the guy a lot. He'll remain nameless. He, he's taken to describing anyone with views that he has decided are too extreme as terrorists who should be shot or otherwise executed. I know him well enough to know that he's not entirely being facetious. In his online rantings, and I think he'd get a kick out of me calling them that, uh, he has enumerated some devout Christians who had the gall to espouse biblical teaching that Christians have held for 2,000 years. Nothing crazy, just common beliefs of centuries and billions of believers. And, and for that, this, this one Christian who, who made the news one time, in a news article that happened to come across his eyes, that Christian ought to be executed. A member of our congregation recently had to share with some dear friends that she had loved and served through innumerable personal battles that they fought 
that too many times that they had attempted to shipwreck their lives. And, and this member had been there to help clean up the pieces. And they identified as, as lesbian. But that never stopped this member from nearly going to the ends of the earth to care for them in a myriad of distresses. They decided to get married, at least a marriage as the state of Ohio understands it. But when they asked this member to participate in a celebration of that marriage, she declined. Because as a Christian, she couldn't rightly celebrate something that God did not celebrate. She still loved them, would do any, nearly anything for them, but she couldn't bring herself to celebrate sin. And for this one act of loving, in, in year, the midst of years of loving service, she was, I can assure you, hated and reviled and had her name spurned as evil. It's caused her to lose friends that she held dear because she loved the son more than society's sanction. The great, Jesus says, is her reward in heaven. Far too often we're guilty of pleasing the crowd. It's intense. If I, if I post online a story from the New York Times, I will be bashed as a closet liberal. And if I post an article from the National Review, I'll be bashed as a right-wing extremist. Perfect political correctness is probably impossible in 2019. So you'll find your affinity group. You'll find the group you most like or most fit into or which your friends tend to belong. And you'll pick a camp broadly on the left or broadly on the right. And, and your tendency is, is to kowtow to that group's approval. And you'll put yourself, you'll pat yourself on the back for the accolades you receive and the people on the other side who criticize you will just simply be dismissed as ones who don't get it. So if you're right-wing, you'll love your right-wing accolades and dismiss the liberals as idiots. And if you're right-wing, you'll love your left-wing accolades and dismiss the conservatives as idiots. But don't think for a moment that because the other side hates you, that you're blessed. That's not what Jesus is saying. To the contrary, if you're enjoying the accolades of your side more than you love the truth of Jesus, he's saying, woe to you. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. See, Jesus doesn't pronounce blessing on those who may rile up opposition. He pronounces blessing on those who rile up opposition because of their passionate commitment to Jesus. Not your politics, not your sharp tongue, not your personality. It's your passionate commitment to Jesus. And if that riles up opposition, great is your reward in heaven. The more polarized our society becomes, the more it becomes clear to me that the message of Jesus, it pisses off everyone. There are wonderful touchstones in the message of Jesus with the left and the right. He, his care for the poor resonates with the left. His concern for personal holiness resonates with the right. But you can't preach the full Jesus and not tick off a lot of people, period. Period. 
So what part of Jesus are you holding back? And it's not, of course, all about social media posting. If, if you try to live a holy, righteous Christian life, I believe most of the time, most of the time, depending on your circumstances, in a place like this, we'll live at peace with our neighbors. Because a gentle word turns away wrath, as Solomon wrote, and because you will live a quiet life that seeks the good of your neighbors, there will be peace. But if you try to live a holy, righteous, and Christian life, you will nonetheless inevitably run afoul of your neighbors or your coworkers, or your family, or today's thought leaders. But great is your reward in heaven if for Jesus' sake you take that risk. The blessings and woes of Jesus' message tell us that Jesus' true followers live in light of an eternal future because they have died to a temporary present. And this is the divide that characterizes the crowd that has gathered around him. Some live for today and are truly dead, and some have died to today and are truly alive. Which are you? Jesus' true disciples are marked by a deep and abiding contentment with this world because they have died to this world. In the next section of Jesus' sermon, looking at verses 27 through 38 here, he, he describes the outward characteristics of a true disciple. And it can be summed up with two words, love and mercy. And if I could sum it up with one, Jesus' disciples are marked by compassion. The first paragraph there, verses 27 through 31, if you, if you just let them sit on you, they can be extraordinarily heavy. Love, good. We love to love. We're told all we need is love, that love makes the world go round, that love is the answer. Love your enemies. Your enemies. Your enemy is the person who would wish you harm. Your enemy is the person in your life who is attempting to make your life miserable. They physically hurt you. They emotionally hurt you. They spiritually hurt you. They psychologically hurt you. They financially hurt you. Or if they don't, they would if they could. Your enemy is against you. This isn't a troublemaker. This isn't an annoying person. This is an adversary. Love him. Love her. While you're at it, you may as well love all the people that you don't like very much that aren't out to get you. You know how hard it is to love someone who wants your destruction? Some of you do. Some of you have. Do good. Yeah, the, the Salvation Army tells me to do that every time I see their truck. Do good. We all want to do good to those who hate you. To those who despise you who are disgusted by you, who think that you are vermin, the, the ooze that sloughs off paramecia. Do that person good who wants absolutely nothing to do with you. Pray. Sure, send your thoughts and prayers. No, lift up before your heavenly Father who holds all eternity sovereignly in his hand the person who has abused you 
The sense, I think, here is, is verbal abuse, threatening or harsh words. Um, the words that break your spirit and eat at your soul. Your temptation is probably to lash back with a biting word of your own. But Jesus' instruction is to open your mouth to heaven on their behalf. And so then we get to the one who strikes you on the cheek and, and the one who demands your goods. I think that might be a little bit more accurate than beg because of the, the context and, and the word often has the sense of sort of requesting something forcefully. And I think that just makes more sense here. But Jesus says his disciple is not to return fire with fire. Rather, when we're burned, we offer up more of ourselves for kindling. And it's in this context that Jesus utters those famous words, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That's sort of a radical love, isn't it? When you're being insulted, when you're being abused, when you're being berated, when you're being pilfered, when you're being cursed, when you're being attacked, do to the attacker as you wish they were doing to you. That's radical love. And Jesus defends it. He explains, he says, look, even sinners, that is people who don't know God at all, who have no concern for living righteously at all, because after all, we're all sinners. So even, even some of the worst of the worst, they'll love their friends. They'll do good to those who take care of them. And they'll pray for those they like. And they give to those who do nice things to them. But Jesus' followers can be identified by the radical love. The hinge is be merciful even as your father is merciful. After all, he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And that is the pivot to the famous and famously taken out of context line, judge not and you will not be judged. Howard Marshall, the eminent New Testament theologian, explained what was prohibited and not prohibited this way. The context would suggest that it is the attitude which fails to show mercy to the guilty, which is here being attacked. It is not the use of discernment and discrimination, which is forbidden, but the attitude of censoriousness. The saying does not imply flabby indifference, the great phrase, does not imply flabby indifference to the moral condition of others, nor the blind renunciation of attempts at a true and serious appraisal of those with whom we have to live. In other words, do not judge does not mean do not make any examination or appraisal. On the contrary, we must make moral appraisals for this command to have any bite. This command doesn't make sense unless you've made a moral appraisal. But just as God is, is uh, kind to the ungrateful and the evil, that's a moral appraisal, right? That in the same way, we are to judge not, lest we be judged. God is merciful with the wicked and the guilty. And that's a category which includes me. It's a category which includes you. He doesn't ignore my sin. 
He doesn't declare my sin okay, let alone good. He doesn't declare my sin my personal preference. But he's not quick to condemn my sin either. Rather, God is slow to punish sin. He's tender and kind. With the view, as as Paul writes, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. In fact, God is so kind that rather than immediately destroy me or you, he sent this same Jesus to live as I have lived, to be tempted as I have been tempted, but to live without sin, not as I've lived. And so he offered his life in place of mine and in the place of many sinners. He took my place, he took my death. So now all who follow him as disciples, who trust him and repent of their evil deeds, may not die eternally, but live forever. God is so merciful that he experienced death for the sake of sinners' souls. And so we can be spared from a day of wrath. God's furious anger, because it was already poured out on Christ. And that means that every day that you are alive is a day that God's patience has not run out on you. He is not yet ready to bring us into the judgment we deserve. So you who would follow Jesus, are you being less merciful than God? If God is still having patience with a sinner, ought you not have the same patience? And in a way, even more, since it's not you they have sinned against ultimately, and it's not you who have ultimately been wronged. If anyone has reason to tear them down for good, it's God, and yet he has stayed his hand. On the contrary, give generously. Show mercy like it's going out of style. You know, when you bake, there are three types of measurements. There's the the, the cup, the, the measure. There's the heaping cup where it's just piled on top. And, and then there's the packed cup where you, you press it down and push it in there to see how much you can make fit in the space. A heaping cup. Best even a heaping packed cup. That's how you make coffee. The package says a tablespoon per two cups. It's a lie. It's a heaping packed down tablespoon per two cups. She mounted up like a giant ball on top of the scoop. Jesus says a true disciple's mercy is like that. Packed down and heaped up. It'd be a disaster for a recipe. But it's sweetness in a righteous life. So you want to play in the crowd with Jesus' followers? Well, here Jesus says is what it looks like to really follow him. Radical compassion, radical love and mercy. But finally, Jesus points to the inner life of his disciples. That true disciple has a Christ-given character. It begins with a parable. Like, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? And the point of the parable is this. You are blind. You don't see clearly, not even adequately. 
You don't see it all. The kind of life of love and mercy that Jesus demands of a disciple is far beyond your ability. You don't know how to walk through this life. But when you become like Jesus, you will see clearly to this kind of life. A disciple is a, a follower student, and as a student, the disciple must learn the ways of the master. Clean up your own sin, Jesus says, before you try to clean up others, which, of course, is fundamentally impossible. Only Jesus can cleanse us. Jesus himself, the master, did not make a habit of hypocritical leadership and correction. Neither should we. Does that mean that Christians don't practice leadership and correction? No, not by any means. Of course we do. But here's what it does mean. It means that our leadership and our correction is, is supposed to look different than the leadership and the correction of the world. If we're honest, too much of what is labeled as Christian in this area is simply not. And I've been guilty of it myself. Christian correction is not self-help. It's not five steps to success. It's not seven principles of perseverance. Christian correction is not you, the disciple, fixing other people's flaws and sins. Even less is it teaching them how to correct their own. That's just, it's not in the Bible. That's not gospel living. And that's not gospel correction. Gospel correction is guiding one another to the perfect one, who sees clearly, who has no speck or log in his eye to remove our sins for us. Gospel correction is pointing people back to God's word for the rubric and pointing people to God's spirit for the power to fight sin. We preach the gospel and we press into the gospel. And we, stay, and we say with Paul, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do we put to death the deeds of the body? By the Spirit. Not by your pastor. Not by your small group leader. Not by your own hand. Not for the latest bestseller but by the Spirit. That is non-hypocritical gospel correction. Gospel correction is not hypocritical because it does not pretend to be well. It doesn't pretend to be healed. Rather, it says, look, friend, I am sick like you are. But come with me because I know where to find the doctor who has the cure. The second parable of sorts that Jesus tells us under this last bit of his message is the effect that good trees don't produce good fruit and bad trees, or good trees produce good fruit, bad trees produce bad fruit. We, we've seen this metaphor earlier in Luke, and I won't belabor it, but in short, the quality of the fruit is the very by measure by which we judge a fruit tree. And similarly, our lives tell the tale of our inner being. Uh, a caution here. Any fruit expert will tell you that not every fruit that looks good is good. So we don't judge merely by appearances, right? We've seen our share of Christian leaders in the last two years who looked really good from afar. 
but unfortunately those who were close to them knew a very different story. I grabbed a delicious looking blueberry yesterday. Plump, it was round, it was great, it was sour. Quality of the fruit is more than just what it looks like. And so we need to be more careful about our judgment than mere appearances. You know what I'm saying? But still good fruit comes from good people and the goodness of a person is rooted deep in the heart. Disciples of radical love and radical mercy draw from a, a deep well of love and mercy in their hearts. But the heart is, you know, the most difficult thing to change. Sometimes some of you are learning the joys of lawn care and maintenance. Sometimes your lawn grows old and weak and you can do nothing to it but to overseed it. All you can do is add new seed to grow up where the old bad lawn is to overtake it. Sometimes it's only possible to allow the grass to die out rather than to keep trying to revitalize it with fertilizer. I've never seen grass make itself good from the inside out. Why? Because most of the grasses that we like to grow that we think look pretty were not designed for this climate. That's why we heat fertilizer and spray them with water all summer long. And so if you want good-looking grass, you've got to put something good down inside of it. In the same way, to produce a good life, you must have good treasure in your heart, but you can no more put good treasure in your heart than Kentucky bluegrass can put nutrients into its xylem. And that brings us to the culmination of Jesus' teaching. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus chastises the crowd gently. They've gathered to him. They call him Lord, Master. But he knows very well that many of their lives do not reflect his teaching. They don't do what he has told them to do. And in that, they show that Jesus is not really their master, not really their Lord. Discipleship, at the end of the day, means obedience. There's an incongruence if you claim to follow Jesus, but don't go anywhere he tells you to go. You're not going to be with him very long. If you have your pet sins, the areas that you refuse to surrender to him, whether it be your career or it be your social life or your amusement, your sex life, your anger, your selfishness, your stubbornness, whatever it might be. You're not following his command. And really, Jesus says it's a question of wisdom and folly. A man who digs down deep to the ground and, and puts his house on a foundation, a bedrock of stone beneath the sandy soil. And a man who takes the shortcuts and simply lays his house on top of the soil. When the perils of life come, and they will, one was destroyed and the other stayed. And really, that's a question of life and death. Because there is a coming day of destruction. Those disciples, the true disciples, who are obedient to Jesus, will find on that day that their house and their life has escaped. 
And those who do not obey Jesus will find themselves utterly destroyed. With these three, when these three ideas are, are put together, we see that true disciples have an inner character that comes from following the way of the master. There's no shortcut to discipleship. You cannot be a disciple without a discipler. You can't be a student without a teacher. Obey Jesus. Be equipped by the master. And slowly, he will put good treasure into your heart from which good fruit will come. Disciples are marked by a Christ-given character. So that's it. Disciples are marked by calling and contentment and compassion and Christ-given character. And so then the question becomes twofold. One. Are you truly a disciple of Christ? Have you died to this world to live so radically? And for others who maybe are hearing the call to follow Christ, the question is, will I, am I wanting that kind of commitment? Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us, disciples who are bad disciples. We follow poorly sometimes. But God, we confess that we long to follow the Son. We pray for your forgiveness for the ways that we have fallen short. Make us to sit at your feet. To soak in your teaching, your truth, your grace, and your mercy, that our lives might overflow with the same. That we might be blessed rather than be pronounced a woe. And that we might find ourselves called up on the mountain. Father, I pray for those this morning who have deluded themselves into thinking that they are a disciple of your son. They say they follow. They say, Lord, Lord. But they do not do what you say. And so it is impossible for the life of love and mercy to flow from them. And a woe hangs over their head, and they remain with the crowd and not with the called. For you know who belongs to your son. Father, waken them by your spirit that they might die to what they hold dear. And with them, God, may those who've never heard the call hear that call today. And through the preaching of these members, those who are called by your name,
that we might be blessed indeed, and they too with us. It's in the strong name of the great Master Jesus we pray. Amen. As you're able, we invite you to stand and continue to worship with us in song.